Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, at JB3, and we're still in COVID. It has not left us. But what it has done is revealed many of the cracks in our social infrastructure. And today we're going to dive into technology as one of those cracks and how it has created inequitable outcomes for students. The theme this week has really been around the digital divide. And I really want to preface our conversation today with we're talking about the digital divide in education because it exists in other spaces as well. And so today's guest will be talking about how that digital divide shows up in the classroom and how it harms some of our students. And so I'm excited to introduce you all to the soon to be Dr. TJ McCray. TJ, you want to take over? Sure. My name is TJ. I am a currently serve as the director of instructional technology of library and media services for Madison Metropolitan School District, which is the second largest school district in the state of Wisconsin. I've been in this role now for three years. I am a former classroom teacher for seven years, as well as an administrator of virtual learning for seven years as well. And I'm entering my 18th year of in being in education. 18 years, 18 years in a classroom. That is commitment and I'm just glad because it's rare to find black male educators in the first place. So thank you for your dedication. And you're also in your doctoral program, right? I am. I am actually uh, wrapping up. And believe it or not, I just got my first round of feedback from my dissertation advisor and my committee. So I am in in the final stages, um, just going through the back and forth of feedback. I have a completed dissertation and um, I am planning to be done by December of 2020. Awesome. Blessings to you, sir. Thank you. Now, tell me a little bit about your goals, right? You know, as far as your education and what you're trying to pursue right now. Yeah, um, that that's, that is really, 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 really funny. Um, when I when I think of myself, like what I think about, I think like my my goals have always changed. I like to say that my goals are very fluid. Um, when I was five, for example, my life goal was to be Thurgood Marshall. Believe it or not, for a very long time, I thought that being Thurgood Marshall was a job. Not a lawyer, not a judge, but it was like I want to be Thurgood Marshall. And I got that idea because I remember reading a book about Thurgood Marshall and thinking. I want to be thoroughgood. Um, and then as things begin to change, I realized I wanted to be a lawyer. And then from a lawyer, I went, you know, I went into education. And originally, like, I really thought I wanted to become a superintendent of a school district. But now that I'm working as a district administrator, I think my aspirations kind of change more. Like, I really don't know if it's, if it's the superintendency that I want to do or if it's really... I, I really have a love for really building a capacity of teachers um, and really in their instructional practices. So I really want to do something where I'm really connecting in that. Um, but my ultimate goal is one day I want James to be able to say, oh my God, that is TJ being sworn in as a secretary of education and I had a podcast with him. 
Like that is the goal, the end goal of where I would like to be. And I always tell people is the reality of it is I might never get there, but I'm truly going to have fun getting there. And so that's just something that I, I really think about like long term goals. Like I want to be the secretary of education. Mm, I ain't mad at it. And <laughs> when you make it, I'll definitely repeat this episode over and over and over. <laughs> So you mentioned that you spent a little bit of time in education, kind of in the classroom, and then you deviated to more of this uh, technology type role. You know, tell mm -hmm. me a little bit about what happened that made you make that shift. So like I said, I was in a classroom for seven years and I, I was beginning to feel this, this desire to do more. I wanted to do more. And for me, I have this thing of, when you have that desire to really want to do more, and when you don't really know, you begin to reach. You begin to reach for different things. Like I know I want to stay in education. I want to go in administration, but I didn't know the avenue that I wanted to do. And so I literally just began to reach and apply for different things. And so what happened was I, um, Started began working for a company. Now that company is part of Pearson, but it was then called Connections Education. And they were looking for someone in the Houston area to start building a program with Houston ISD, which is the largest school district here in Houston area. And what they were looking for was someone to build their home hospital program, which was, an, was using an online platform. So taking those good instructional practices that were happening in the classroom and trans transforming them online um, with a, a population of students who could not afford to be in school because either they were receiving some type of treatment in a medical center or maybe they were in a rehab center and the truth of even someone was incarcerated. And so they were looking to reach shape and redefine how those students learn because these students were zoned to HISD. And so that's how I actually started this, this trajectory of being in the virtual learning. And so that first year, I was just working with HISD to build that partnership. And then the more I got into it, I began to take on different clients. So it went from me just running this home hospital program to now I was running programs in different school districts in Texas. And then the more I began to do it and work, I began before I left, I was managing about 144 programs across the United States in school districts, large and small, helping them to really do do virtual learning within their districts. So some district, it was about um, uh, providing like advanced placement courses. Some of them we were providing full on courses. Some of them we were using their teachers while I was working and training their teachers. And in some school districts, we were using our teachers at the same time. So it allowed me to really be able to get a sense of what virtual learning can look like and get that firsthand experience on so many different levels. So with virtual learning, and especially like in the era of COVID, right, like there's so many people trying to adopt virtual learning as the solution. What are some of the gaps that you're seeing? Especially yeah. To like for the students. Immediately my mind goes to a, a number of different places. The first place is, is the gap of the sense of technology um, on a whole. You know, we live in a place where technology has become, it, it moved from being this luxury to this necessity. 
And the gap exists because we have a number of families that just do not have access to technology once they leave away from schools. So when there's school for some families, it will be the first and the only time that they will touch technology. And so when you think about this area of COVID, we are moving to virtual learning, but the problem is we have not done the best job of addressing that gap prior to COVID. So prior to COVID, these issues exist. We experienced a number of families that just did not have access to technology, and now we're moving to a solution that is based on it. And a lot of school districts are trying to figure out how then are we supporting those families. So that's the first thing. It's just that, that sense of like the access to it. The other thing is that one of the things that I learned is just the, the piece of that working online requires our students and our scholars to really be at grade level with reading because a lot of the work that they're required to do requires a lot of independent reading. And some of our students and especially our most marginalized students are already behind and now we're requiring them to be online some of them to do a lot of independent work, and we've not done our best job of addressing that prior to COVID. So now we're taking an issue that already existed, and now we're in the middle of COVID, and we're requiring things that some of our scholars and students just might not be able to do. So off the top, those are two of the biggest things that we really need to make sure that we're working on and considering. So how do we fix it? I mean, of course, that's the naive. It can easily be done with the flip of a light switch. But what are some of the solutions and what's your role in it? That is such a hard question to answer, if I'm honest with you. Um, and because I think it's going to look different, you know, depending on the school districts. The biggest thing that we have to do is to look at how are we equipping teachers to do this work? It's not that teachers can't do the work. We know that teachers can and teachers, teachers do some of the most amazing and miraculous work out of any other profession in the world. But the issues that we need to consider is how are we equipping teachers to be able to work with students and teachers during this time around these issues? What we know is that we cannot do business like we've been doing prior to COVID because those things just don't work. We want teachers to get in front of a, a you know, to be in front of a computer and teach the kids. But here's the reality. Some of these teachers never thought that they would be teaching virtually online. And we are pushing them in front of it to do the work. So what districts need to really consider is how are we preparing our teachers to do the work? That is the first step. The second thing, the second solution is we have to do a better job of including our parents as partners because we are relying on our some of our parents at this point, yes, you know, to become those teachers. But then how are we going to support the parents and to really be able to do that when 
I might be someone who don't know third. I, it's been 10 years since I had to take third grade math. I don't know how to teach my child or I'm going to teach my prime example. Today I was working with my son on math and I was teaching him the way I learned. And then it, it dawned on me because he's like, I don't know what you're talking about because it's changed from when I was in third grade years ago. So how are we equipping and really thinking about working with our parents in order to really make sure like they are okay and how are we also making to ensure like we are not making it, making our parents feel like we are asking them to do the role of the educator, but instead doing the role of the teacher. Last week I was on a panel and that's one of the things that I tried to stress is that parents know what their students need more than anybody else. They might not be able to articulate it when we're thinking about like using the educational jargon to say like something's not right, but they know because they know their children because you know when you talk about that heart work, parents are connected in the heart. And so they know and understand like something's just not right. I can't put my mind on it so my, or my finger on it. So that's a sense where we really need to making sure like we're really doing a better job of partnering with our parents um the the other thing i think about is just like as the district and, and i'm going to use this to segue into the second part of your question like what's my role is we as districts need to make sure like we are really doing everything that we can to bridge those gaps that we talked about so that that gap of like access so like how are, how are we as individuals on the district level like really ensuring that we're closing that gap of access for technology right how are we making sure like we are really doing that work so for me one of the things that you know we're, we're doing within my district is yes we are doing and you know so for some people it's like that sounds like so easy like give the families high spots well it's really not easy when you have to think like how then do we afford to pay for these different things and so that's one of the things that, you know, I began to do in the spring is partnering with our board. We partner with like we have a foundation through our district for this year to think about to continue the keeping our families connected so that we can continue to make sure like they are connected. So one of the things that we're doing is we are giving our families who identify and say we don't have access to Wi-Fi. We're giving them um, a hotspot so that they can work um, to continue their um, educational practices at home so that they can be connected because the reality of it is spring is, is winter going to hit us and we, we provided wireless access points on our schools, but we don't want families to have to like get out in the middle of a snowstorm if they still need to be connected. So how are we thinking about connectivity in long term, not just like right now? Um, we've also began to um, really leverage partnerships with communities um, partners. So, for example, we work with our, our, our um, public library. Um, they have something called a dream bus. And so we work to like identify where are the areas where we are seeing like the most families without Wi-Fi. And in the spring, we use that bus to go into those areas to connect families at the same time. Um, so I just think it's important for districts just to begin to leverage all those different partnerships that they have at the same time. There are a lot of assumptions, I would believe, that come with 
this idea of technology and having access to technology? Because it's one thing to have the tools in front of you, but do you have the additional tools or even the literacy to really leverage what you have? And I think you just made a brilliant point in really clarifying that that's not true. And, and let me talk about that, too, because when I first moved to, moved to Madison, um, one of the things that I wanted was I wanted students to take their devices home. So we were a one-to-one district, but that what was happening was that the, um, the students were keeping their devices at school. And I was beginning to talk, when you talk about that digital divide, you know, and, and let me go back and be very clear. Some people like to call it the homework gap. I absolutely positively do not like that term. I've never heard that before. Yes, like because what they say is like, oh, kids can't do homework when they go home. So it's like that homework gap. Well, that's to me, it's bigger than that, right? And and I want to be tr- totally honest. I know that we have families who are using these devices not just for educational purposes, but in my mind, I'm okay with that because it is true that we are in a space where people might have connectivity, but they have connectivity on their phones. So what happens is like, you know, like people be like, well, they got Wi-Fi at home because they got a smartphone. And so for me, what that is, that's just entertainment, right? But they can't complete like job applications, scholarship applications, right? Things like research. They can't do that on a phone. They need to be able to do that on a device, on a computer. And for me, that's moving them from entertainment to empowerment. We need to empower our students. We need to empower our families. And we have to do that and ensuring like they have the devices and the connectivity in the homes and not just at school. And even just hearing the term homework gap, that to me puts a lot of the burden on the families, right? Like it's just this this more or less assumption that, you know, you're just not going to do your homework because you don't have internet. Correct. And, and, And the thing is that, you know, so what that requires and that's one of the things that me and my team were doing is we are challenging teachers to really think how they're using technology in their instructional practices. So here's the thing. Technology is not a silver bullet and technology will never replace great teachers. So when I was coming up, I didn't have a lot of technology, but I can tell you the teachers who made a difference. My fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Brooks. My sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Thomas. My eighth grade teacher, Mrs. Thomas. And none of those had to do anything with technology. It was just about good teaching. So for me, what has to happen is teachers have to have great instructional practices and then the technology has to undergird that in great instructional practice. So if you don't have great instructional practices, for me, you got to pull away from using technology because if you don't, what happens, technology becomes what you lead with and you need to lead with good instructional practices because that's what's going to move our students. So when you're talking about those that bring them up, good instructional practices is how we use technology will help you to move that student. I know education is it's complicated when we talk specifically about funding because it varies per institution, per district, and it shares some similarities to public health in that regard. Could you speak to some of the challenges that you've seen when it comes to the funding 
for education, especially when you're trying to center equity, because I imagine it's more or less trying to do more with less. We need more, like, I think there's so many districts right now because of COVID that are, you know, causing us, like, staffing issues. Like, you know, people are worried about what's going to happen next for them and things of that nature. Um, budget, you know, how that's impacting. And the way we allocate funds to districts, I don't even want to get started on that. Um, <laughs> but, but you're right. Like, we are required to move mountains with mustard seeds, right? The, the, the size of mustard seeds is what we get, but we need to move these mountains. And the thing about it to do that, it is our classroom teachers. And we have to do a better job of so many different things of like allocation as far as funds in our classrooms, leveling the playing fields to ensure like all schools have equal access to things so that just not some school districts have access to this and some don't. You know, I believe like I'm in a district where we were lucky to begin to do the work of moving our district to become one-to-one -one six years ago. And so this year we are lucky and blessed that every last one of our schools were just one-to-one. -one. But I think about some of the school districts who can't do that because of the funds that they do and do not have, right? That, can't, that, that is a situation that cannot continue. And what I hope is that when we are back in school, like we are learning how the playing field is not leveled amongst within the district and amongst districts, right? Because we know that that exists even within a school district where you might have one school that have something and one school that doesn't. How then are we gonna begin to level the playing field within the district? And how are we gonna level amongst them so that one district have it and the same district do it at the same time? A parent shouldn't have to move their child from one district to another based on what they have. We have to do a better job at that. The second part of virtual learning about doing it right, I really think that this year is the year for researchers because this is the year where we're gonna really be able to see where are the districts that are getting it right. Because here is the thing, unless you already have virtual learning going on within your district, we're all struggling trying to figure out how to make this work. Today is a new day versus yesterday, which we made it work yesterday. Right? And when I say yes, it was in the spring. In the spring, we were trying to make it work and we were putting band-aids to different things because we assumed that we were gonna be this in this for a short term. But now when we're in a long term, districts are adjusting how they're doing this work now. And so I think when this year's over with, we're gonna see a lot of districts who are gonna be able to say, we got this right. And when the next emergency come, we're gonna be ready because we're gonna know what to do. So I'm going to be calling on your creative side and I'd love for you to paint us a picture of the new normal because in, in public health spaces, we've been talking more often when COVID-19 is more controlled because we're not sure if it'll ever go away. What will the new normal look like? And for you specifically, what does it look like in using technology to facilitate education? I never knew the power of virtual learning until I got into virtual learning. I want to go back and just paint this picture of my first client. My first touch with virtual learning was for a program who had students who were cancer 
survivors and going through cancer treatment, who were in rehabilitation centers, who were incarcerated for whatever reason, they were still being held and required to have an educational program. And the first thing we begin to do is make the program work for them around their needs instead of making their needs work around their educational program. So when I think about the what's next, I am hoping that districts will begin to see how we can take virtual learning and individualize, or what we like to say is personalized learning for individual students and stop using this banker or this factory model of learning that was in place when Dewey was writing about education and Horace Mann was writing about education. So long ago where students were sitting in a classroom, teacher was standing in front of them and, and they were, it was only about memorization and reciting what you had to know, like let's learn our multiplication facts real quick, right? And let's be able to recite them. We gotta get past that. And the only way we're able to do that is if we are able to personalize the learning for individual students. And we can do that with virtual learning because virtual learning will allow us to create these plans for individual students that will meet the needs of our students. We have to get in, and what personalized learning will also do is it moves it from being a teacher-centered approach to now a student-centered approach. So the student is more involved and it's about, here are your outcomes, James. So these are the outcomes that we need to learn this week. How do you want to learn them? You tell me as the teacher, how do you best learn? We don't have an achievement gap. Because what happens is we place those African-American students or marginalized students and say like, oh, it's an achievement gap. Here's the thing. Black folks been achieving for years and years and years. We just need the opportunity to, to show it, right? So give us the opportunity to show you that I can succeed. And the only way you're going to be able to do that if you make the educational program work for me. Don't make, don't try to fit me in a box of a, of a program, of an education system that really wasn't even created for, for me. It was really created to exclude me. So now you want to include me in it but you can't do that under the same way. So make that thing so it's really applicable to me. And the only way you're gonna be able to do that if we personalize it for the individual student. Allow me to show you how I learn, how I excel. That's what I'm hoping that people can see that virtual learning will do. Amen, drop the mic. I mean, I don't know what else there is to say. That That is the heart of equity work. It's about access. It's about removing barriers and it's about giving people exactly what they need. So when you're talking about personalized education, that to me is at the heart and soul of equity. Of course, I need to know this is the ongoing theme with Equity Matters is we're really pressing on self-care in the era of COVID. We're challenged because we can't go to the gym like we used to. We can't walk away because of boundaries that we have failed to set. So I'm really curious as to how do you maintain your own sense of sanity? And also, how do you make sure that your heart is filled? When we talk about equity, you've heard me say it before, that equity work is heart work and heart work is hard work. Tell us how are you managing everything? 
So I've not always done the best at that. And because I'm, I'm a servant leader, right? And so with that, what happens is if, if you're on my team and you bring me a problem, I take on that problem because at the end of the day, I want to ensure that you are good, you are great, so that you can do this work because in my mind, I realize I'm going to be okay. Um, over the last year, and especially with COVID hitting, I realized like I had to, it's okay for me to be selfish and put myself first because I can't continue to pour in people from an empty pie, okay? Um, so one of the things that I learned to do is I love food. I love to cook and I love to eat. Um, and all my friends know when I'd be like, I'm going home to watch my soap opera, that's really the Food Network. So I go from watching CNN to Food Network. And so when I think about self-care, one thing that I begin to do is um, I work out every day. Um, in the middle of the day, I work with my admin and put time on my calendar for me to step away from the work and just take a walk, take a run, do something in the middle of the work to break it off. Because I'm pretty sure anyone in education realized now we're working longer and more now than we were. We were traditionally in a brick and mortar because the work doesn't stop. It's in our home. We're always working. And so I begin to kind of break that up. Um, so I cook a lot, right? So if, if you, I, when you follow me on social media, all you're going to see is two things. Either I'm cooking, I'm eating, or I'm working out. And that brings me so much joy when I'm not in Texas with my family because I'm, I'm in Madison alone. So when I can't get to Texas, that's the joy. My other joy is just being with my son. So we FaceTime a lot. We read to each other via FaceTime. So again, I'm grateful for technology to allow me to be able to have that touch when we're miles and miles away. Um, but, but I've learned that it's okay for me to realize like, I need, we, we can no longer say we're practicing self-care. We have to make sure we're truly practicing that self-care. So the way I do it when I'm in Madison, it's about me cooking, working out, doing that. And then when I know, I know like I'm at the bottom of my, 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 my barrel and I can't do anything else, I drive home like that's what I've been doing. I just get in my car, drive those 17 hours, and just I just need to be loved on by my family. And I didn't realize how much I needed until COVID really hit, and I couldn't do it. I took it for granted. Right. The ability to get on a plane and just come home. And then when COVID hit, not having that ability, I, you know, and so now I no longer take it for granted. And so I think it's important for educators to really make sure like they are practicing that self-care. That is important. Whatever that sense of self-care is, we have to be able to do it because what happens is, and I, you know, you led with that, like you led with this is hard work and hard work. And for a lot of the educators, the hard work is what's so hurtful for us, right? Not being able to be in the same room with our students, that's heavy on our hearts. And so sometimes we're constantly working and working and working. And so we just have to make sure we're taking the time to replenish for ourselves. So of course, on an episode about technology, I'm gonna have to ask you for your social media. I mean, you're working, you're in school, you're also cooking, and I'm sure people wanna see those recipes. Side note, I did 
already looked through your page and I did see this chicken sandwich, flame. But how can people follow you? So LinkedIn is definitely my professional place, like where I post a lot of different things on that area. So please follow me, TJ McRae on LinkedIn. Um, and then if you ever so happen, like if you're following me just for the funds, for, for the labs and all that, then I'm definitely over on, on Instagram at PBSDub9, where I'm posting all my good foods and all my workout stuff of that nature. So follow me over there on, on Instagram if you so desire. But for the most part, LinkedIn is where I live. So now that we've got your social lockdown, give us one more thing, one more takeaway that you have for the listeners. Just remember the why you are in the field of education, because you could be in any other profession making all the money in the world. But I know that my educators are in this because it's for the love. It's for to ensure that the students have the right person in front of them. Don't forget to tap into the why you're doing it. So just don't forget that. Remember your why. I think that applies for all of us as we're out there doing that difficult, heavy lifting that is called for when it comes to equity work. And so, again, TJ, I just want to thank you for your time today. It's been refreshing to hear an educator out there thinking about their students, placing their students first and realizing that technology is not the end all. It's not the solution. It's the pathway to the solution. So kudos to you. Wishing you continued success in your education endeavors and excited to see what happens on the other end for you. So thanks again, TJ. Thank you for this opportunity. I really think it's great to really uplift like what's going on during this time of COVID and how we can make it work. And to all the listeners at home, as always, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Always looking forward to your feedback. Please leave comments wherever you're listening from. Please follow us on Instagram. That's Equity Matters Podcast. We are having some great conversations over there, really trying to build a community of like-minded folks who are committed to equity, diversity, inclusion, and really just social justice as a whole. So follow us on over there. I'm really excited because recently we crossed the 300 follower threshold. And for somebody who's building this organically, there's no paid ads, there's no promotion. That is exciting. It is the result of sweat equity and just seeing people really get excited about the work. It brings me great joy. So thank you so much for your dedication and commitment. I will remain dedicated and committed myself. And as always, equity matters.